Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just gone four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. Thank you, Chris. Today, the life of a draft resistor during the Vietnam War, or as the Vietnamese say, the American War on Vietnam. I'll be speaking with Bob Muntz. Exposing military aggression against the indigenous peoples of Mindanao in the Philippines with Peter Murphy. Six weeks living in a Western Sahara refugee camp in Algeria in 2009. That's writer, teacher and filmmaker Mona Kazan. But first, let's hear it from that man again, Mr Kevin Healy, and find out just what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane Lister, when big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull corrected what many Trublawazis thought was a miscalculation in that now footnote in parliamentary history, tiny a bit more for the boss's time, that but 5% of Trublawazis were women. No, no, I've shown my great support for women by acknowledging that 20% of Trublawazis are women. And we're all celebrating a proud first. The first non-male Minister for Offensive Trained Killing, Marie's a painful death, who will bring a woman's touch to killing. But I take issue with that painful death bit. Marisa chastised us. It is not painful. It is a cause for celebration, for national pride, and praising our brave young men and women in uniform, cream of true blue Aussie youth trained killers, when we kill the evil people we invade under our orders from the great commander in Washington. But it is painful, a national tragedy, if they kill one of our brave, loves his family and dear little children, life of the party, great sense of humour, fun to be with, trained killers. We, we all feel the pain showing just how evil these people we invade are. Uh, but, but, Marisa, we go there to kill them, wedding parties and all that. Certainly, but that doesn't give them the right to kill us. Last week we noted how the footnote had honoured his promise not to rock the boat. Scuttle them, scuttled me! And it all scuttled the poor old red-faced, foul-faxed, true-blue-Aussie capitalist review. Oh, for the power of prescience, the annual power edition of its monthly glossy magazine. These things prepared well in advance. Friday, oops, blush, number one, tiny the footnote. Well, they'd like to perpetuate the myth that power lies in parliamentary democracy. (laughs) Number one, tiny the footnote. Number three, Peter, ex-chief of staff, who now says others should promote more women. Perhaps Tiny just didn't listen to her on that one. Anyway, it's a wonder the capitalist review didn't just shred them all. Oh no, sorry, sorry, only evil unions do that. Poor old Malcolm only came in at number six, whereas by publication day, number one, the footnote, was spluttering on the very back of the back bench, about as powerful as a stick of fairy floss. With that qualification that the capitalist review likes to perpetuate the myth that power lies in Parliament House, rather than with the big, big boardroom puppeteers who manipulate the strings and those on the end of them. 
We also mentioned Free Kills the Union's former senior partner, Mick Killer, cost the workers appointment as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations. Well, what a thoughtful gift her nondescript predecessor, Erica Betts on the Bosses, left her with which to cosh the workers. New appointments in his dying days to the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a bench, including Christopher Platt, a BHP for bloody huge profits employee, non-relations manager, who addressed that coven of caring business class balance, the HR Nichols Society, on the eve of the 07 election. It is regrettable that the election of a socialist government will be accompanied by the backswing of the industrial relations pendulum instead of building on the successes of the legislative reform. Having made the hard decisions to reform industrial relations, True Blue Aussie is now reaping the benefits. The socialist policy, if translated into legislation, will produce a suboptimal outcome for our industry at a time we should be capitalising on our opportunities. And Tania Sirkovic, former legal partner with that working class hero Michael Kroger, who also told the HR Nickel Society, there is a chance to condemn the union movement to history. This will only be done if the employment groups reinvent themselves by refusing to give legitimacy to the collective paradigm. Eric's parting gift to McKillar cost the workers, impartial commissioners who believe evil unions should be condemned to history. They make the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission look like a union rally. Still, thank goodness the incoming socialist policy was not translated into legislation. Bringing us to the with friends like that who needs department. We mentioned that line of the Labor Movement Martin cliche last week. This week, State Public Pays Private Profits Transport Minister Jacinta Alien to Workers joined the queue of Socialist Party heavy supporting their constituency, attacking evil rail workers for holding the grand final crowd to ransom by providing free public transport. Disgraceful. Imagine the bitter disappointment fans so looking forward to the big day and then this happens. I can't go, I, I refuse to use public transport unless they let me pay. Yeah, they would have all been shattered if it had gone ahead. And now Jacinta herself is extending the free zone to provide free public transport to the game and related events. Apparently it's only evil if the unions do it. And as the forces of economic reason lined up against them, workers were also supported unequivocally by another lion of socialism, former state socialist unelected big supremo John Plastic, described by the Capitalist Review as one of the most successful state socialist leaders and treasurers. Successful? Did they miss the point John couldn't win an election? When he ran as opposition leader, he got rolled. Then after becoming big supremo by default, he got rolled again when he went to an election. Anyway, he's used that towering history of success to tell true blue Aussie workers and the poor a higher GST is inevitable. We need a further rebalancing of the taxation system, he advised, because John Plastic is very, very big at giving advice to the poor. We must help the poor boost their dignity by rebalancing the tax system to allow them that dignity of carrying the tax burden 
of providing the opportunity for those drops of yellow liquid to trickle down to them. On the other hand, let's hope the poor don't develop a sense of entitlement, believe we live in an age of entitlement, when government clearly can't afford such luxuries. As that other footnote, former economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, commented as he packed his bags to head off to the US of the UN of the US of the world to walk in the craven footsteps of that other lump of lard, Kim Bee's knees. It's a wonder Kim could take a footstep given he buckled at the knees so often. Anyway, thank goodness we didn't abolish the age of entitlement completely. <laughs> Joe laughed. Don't want to make light of the situation, but in Germany, a 91-year-old woman who worked as a telegraph operator at Auschwitz has been charged with complicity in murders. And the bit that got me was, because she was under 21 at the time, she'll be tried in a children's court. She's 91. Reform school will sort her out. And as the UN of the US of the UN of the world puts a review into human rights under the auspices of that epitome of human rights, Saudi Arabia, we assume every year all these pilgrims pray they'll be safe, God willing, and then when hundreds, maybe thousands, are killed or injured almost every year, they assume God was not willing. Nothing to do with the way the liberty, freedom and democracy, human rights, love and Saudi royal lot are prepared to make it safe. Either way, God wins. Finally, these silly suggestions that great responsible resource stroke oil giant Hex on the planet knew decades ago that climate change was real and its industry was largely responsible, but continued for decades to produce so-called experts denying what it knew. Silly because no great responsible resource stroke oil giant would put its interests ahead of the community, ahead of the future of the planet. We were fortunate to sit in on a crisis meeting of the asbestos, tobacco and resource pollution industries attempting to resolve the unfortunate image their responsible industries had acquired just because of nothing more serious than a few million deaths and painful illnesses. This is a crisis, they chorused. We are a legal product and unreasonable restrictions are an illegal barrier to our right to go about our lawful business. And you sensibly, as part of an overall poisoned air, asbestos and tobacco diet, they are quite safe. <coughs> Indeed, can be used as a special <coughs> treat for dear little children. Big tobacco was all logic. And the jury is still out on whether our products are dangerous anyway. Big resource pollution looks sincere. Unless you listen to vested interests like scientists and the medical profession. And anyway, even if the occasional little bit of asbestos may, may, and it's a big if, may cause a slight headache or whatever, that small impact doesn't occur for decades. If ever, big asbestos. Exactly, if ever. I say, big tobacco beamed, would you like to test our product? You've got to be joking, but how about a free asbestos roof? We're not stupid, but, but how about a few whiffs from the exhaust pipe? It's very refreshing. Good God, you're not serious, but, but being serious, let's get back to the business at hand. How to convince the punters our products are safe, used in moderation, as part of a balanced diet. When we hear that, it does seem they've got a bad rap. Good afternoon. And it's good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And you can say good morning to Mr. Kevin Healy tomorrow. 
at 9am with Corey Grant when they produce and present City Limits until 10 o'clock. So that's tomorrow morning, 9 till 10 for City Limits. The fourth National Elder Abuse Conference will be held in Melbourne on the 24th and 25th of February 2016. With our ageing population and greater focus on family violence, this conference is a timely and crucial part of the effort to stop elder abuse. Focusing on ageism, rights and innovation, the conference will benefit those working with older people. Early bird registrations close on the 11th of November. For more information, check out elderabuseconference.org.au or contact Seniors Rights Victoria on 1300 368 821. That's 1300 368 821. Seniors Rights Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Several weeks ago, Bob Munt spent time with me in the studio talking about his lifetime of activism, beginning as a Vietnam War draft resistor and now an active member of the Greens. Over the next week, I'll be playing highlights of that interview and today the turning point of his teenage years, attending Monash University. I asked him first what he had planned to study. I went to study science and that was uh, my big hope, I guess. turned out to be biological sciences, although I didn't quite know that when I started. But I came from uh, the country, I'd been to a country high school and not much that was uh, political involvement in my uh, growing up there. I was an avid reader of the Reader's Digest and the Melbourne Herald and that more or less defined my politics. So some of what happened at Monash University was uh, quite a shock but I really value those times. I value the science that I learned there and I went on to become a research scientist for quite a long time. But I value even more the uh, introduction I got to social issues and the involvement in social issues that arose out of being a part of a university in a time of great uh, political ferment, which wasn't there when I started. By the time I left three years later, it certainly was. And uh, that was um, something really valuable. And I, I regret that my kids can't get the same experience going to university today because the universities have changed. They're much more vocationally oriented and there isn't that spirit of adventure, intellectual adventure, I don't think, in uh, what goes on there. Certainly not uh, in political sense. How long after you arrived there were things happening? It started to happen in the first year there. Uh, I started studies just a month or so before the uh, Australian government announced they were sending troops to Vietnam and that became... Uh, a bit of a hot issue, and uh, I remember later that year, uh, Monash held the first of what were to be a number of teach-ins, sort of all-day sessions open to all students and any members of the public where people from government ministers down to university lecturers and uh, 
political activists were invited to use their presentations on different aspects of the Vietnam War. Went along to the first of those wondering what that communist Jim Cairns was going to say, prepared to write him off as a ratbag before he'd even opened his mouth. That perhaps started me thinking a bit, and by the next year, uh, just being part of the Monash community meant that I inevitably was engaged in conversations about the Vietnam War, and my views turned about 180 degrees on that one, and uh, I finished my three years at Monash with um, a much more radical outlook on the world than I'd started with. Talk about some of the people who did influence you during those years. I lived in a hall of residence at Monash, so I was there on campus really seven days a week. I remember one day just in the laundry at my hall of residence, uh, someone initiated a, a conversation with me about the Vietnam War, and uh, at that stage I still thought it was a good thing. But I found I couldn't uh, rebut any of his arguments. He set me thinking. By the end of the conversation, I was really well on the way to changing my views. I'm sure he's forgotten all about it, but uh, I ought to thank him for uh, being the spark that uh, generated quite a change in my thinking. But on a larger scale, uh, by the, my third year there, I joined the Monash Labor Club, which um, wasn't really a labor club by that stage. Well, a hotbed of revolutionary thought, you might say, uh, and that club in the middle of 1967 initiated a campaign of aid to the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam. Now, that was taking uh, the debate about the Vietnam War way beyond the idea of uh, whether or not Australian troops should be fighting there. It was saying that uh, we support one particular side in what is essentially a civil war. That's not the side that the Australian government is fighting on. It was really transforming the whole uh, debate on the Monash campus about the Vietnam War and it also had a significant effect nationally. And within a few weeks, after lots of lurid newspaper publicity about these ratbags and traitors at Monash who were collecting money which could be spent on bullets to kill Australian soldiers, the federal government passed an act of parliament which prohibited aid to the National Liberation Front in Vietnam and provided, I think, a two-year jail sentence for anyone who did so gave further stimulus to the debate and uh, inspired the Monash Labor Club to collect money even more. No one was ever prosecuted under that act and within a year or two uh, everyone had forgotten about it, but it certainly played a role on campus in radicalising people like me. And what sort of role did you play? Almost none at all. I, I sat in the back row and listened to the discussions. In fact, shortly before that happened, I decided I wanted to join the Labor, the labor Club for other reasons, but uh, the secretary was reluctant to accept my nomination because he knew this vote was coming up and he was afraid I might vote the wrong way. So I didn't even get an opportunity to uh, vote in uh, Labor Club meetings until after that resolution was passed. I didn't uh, do much more than become an enthusiastic supporter at that time. Was conscription in at that time? Yes, it was. Uh, conscription had started, uh, I think, three years earlier. And that was an issue for the club? Not really, uh, they were rather too radical for that. The issues of conscription were left to uh, the more moderate people, the pacifists and uh, those uh, at Melbourne University who concentrated on that issue. But it was uh, of particular relevance to me since I was conscripted. It was uh, a ballot, so not everyone was conscripted, but about one in ten were. And I was one of the, uh, the lucky ones who uh, my marble was drawn out of the barrel and I was conscripted fairly late in the, uh, my final year at Monash which uh, worried me a little bit, but not all that much because it, I just couldn't conceive. It seemed uh, completely beyond the realms of 
any possibility that I could go from being a student at Monash debating these things to uh, being a conscripted soldier who was uh, in the jungles uh, fighting the war on behalf of a side that he didn't uh, really believe in. So it didn't seem all that real to me at that time. I went on to do a master's after I'd finished my primary degree at Monash. I moved universities to Melbourne and did a master's there. So students were uh, exempt from conscription as long as they uh, were studying at a university. So I didn't really have to uh, make a decision about what I was going to do about my uh, requirement to join the army uh, for another two years, or nearly three years actually till uh, 1970 and by that stage the Vietnam War had become massively unpopular that was the year that began with demonstrations of a hundred thousand people in the streets against the war and I was uh, an active participant and uh, organizer in that and about the middle of that year I finished my studies and uh, I got myself a job in the public service that was okay I suppose as far as it went and that might have dampened my ardor by that time I was pretty keen to do something about conscription and become a draft resistor, indulge in civil disobedience and refuse to join the army. But I might have thought twice about that uh, once I got a secure job in the public service, except that within uh, a month I was advised I'd been sacked from the public service and wasn't a fit and proper person to serve there. Did they explain why? Officially, no, but uh, I uh, began some agitation about that. In fact, I... uh, with the support of some uh, friends who were public servants, organised a demonstration on the steps of Parliament House to protest against this. And I fairly quickly found out that that wasn't the public service way of doing things. I don't think there was ever any chance I'd get my job back, but uh, once I'd staged the demonstration on the steps of Parliament House, that was guaranteed I'd never get my job back. But I enlisted the support of the opposition leader, the Labor opposition leader in the Victorian Parliament. He was satisfied that I'd... uh, lost my job because I had a special branch police record, which a lot of people had at that time, and that's not necessarily particularly significant. But years later, I thought it was interesting, more 12 years later when uh, the Labor government came to power, under the Freedom of Information Act, they allowed people to get access to their special branch police records. And so I applied for and got mine and discovered that the reason my special branch police record had been started was that I had parked my car, which had a no conscripts for Vietnam sticker on the back of it, around the back of the Trades Hall in Drummond Street on a Sunday afternoon when a May Day rally was taking place. So the special branch must have, um, in all their ingenuity, decided to take down the number plate of any likely-looking car, such as those with a political sticker on the back, parked near the Trades Hall where the May Day rally started, start special branch records on them. There was nothing else of much significance in my special branch record. I mean, a lot of pages, but nothing uh, of much significance, although there are a lot of blank pages which might have had uh, more interesting things in them. But uh, on such feeble evidence were people condemned and refused the job in the public service. So I... uh, decided, well, I may as well be hung for sheep as a lamb, so if I was going to be sacked from the public service, I'd become a draft resistor. So I jumped into that full of enthusiasm and grit and determination. What did it actually mean to be a draft resistor? What did you have to do or what didn't you do? There were three stages to it. You had to register in the year or the six months in which you were due to turn 20 and your name would be placed on a list and then marbles corresponding with birth dates would be uh, drawn out of a barrel and uh, 
if your birth date came out, then you were considered to be conscripted. You were advised of that and then required to uh, attend for a medical examination to see if you were fit and healthy to serve in the army, and you could refuse to do that, which I did. If you didn't attend, then you are automatically uh, required to turn up and be inducted into the army, and I refused to do that as well. That's what I didn't do. What I did do was join the newly reformed Draft Resistors Union, composed of people like myself who uh, had been uh, conscripted and began uh, agitation and uh, publicity and all the peaceful uh, political acts, mainly involving uh, spreading the word about uh, what an evil thing the conscription uh, system was and uh, in particular the purpose for which it was used, the Vietnam War. I must say I was always more motivated by my uh, objections to the, the Vietnam War rather than uh, conscription per se. I, I would have supported uh, the limited conscription that Australia uh, set up during the Second World War to fight the Japanese. The spirit of those times was rather heady looking back on it. Uh, it was a time of considerable radicalism and uh, social and political changes which went far beyond the objection to a particular war. A lot of it was uh, sparked by what events that were happening in America where there was also a profound dissolution and rejection of governments and uh, the system, as we called it then, sparked by the Vietnam War but not limited to that. And the same thing was going on in Australia. So there are all sorts of radical ideas afoot and uh, generational rebellion uh, of the youth of the, the 70s against uh, their parents, who would have been, well, grown up uh, much earlier in the much more conservative 40s and 50s, or particularly the 50s. So that was uh, really a heady combination, and uh, draft resistance was just uh, one element of it. Did you become estranged from your family over this? Not particularly. My, my parents had always been of a liberal view, small liberal view, supporters of the Labor Party. They were rather afraid of the consequences. They pleaded with me not to go public about getting sacked from the public service. And they did so because they were aware of the McCarthyist attitudes that had prevailed in Australia and that a lot of people had had their careers ruined because of their uh, special branch or uh, ASIO uh, records. There are people uh, who were scientists like me who never worked again in their field because uh, they were deemed to have uh, communist sympathies or be members of the Communist Party. I really wasn't aware of that at the time, but um, when you're young and think you're free, you lack the wisdom of experience, you're inclined to uh, act first and think later. That's what I did. So I rejected my parents' entreaties, but uh, they all supported me in what I did. In terms of our political views, there was uh, not a whole lot of difference there. I did do a short term in jail for refusing to uh, go for a medical examination and they came along to the court case and uh, uh, supported me in that respect. How did you get to court? Is it a cat and mouse where they come and follow you and well, grab you or what happens? As with uh, any case that proceeds on summons, uh, you receive a letter in the mail saying uh, you are charged with this offence, uh, you're required to appear in court uh, on a certain day. So I chose to go to court with that, knowing that I could be fined or refuse to pay a fine, in which case I'd get a week's jail. So I had other things going on in my life. I was playing cricket on Saturdays. In fact, I was captain of my suburban cricket team, and uh, I wanted to uh, have some certainty there so I could tell the other selectors that I wouldn't be available for play on a particular 
weekend. So there was no cat and mouse involved there. But uh, later on there, there was, after I'd served that jail sentence. Where did you serve the sentence? In Pentridge. I note that these days you can do tours of Pentridge for a considerable sum and spend a night in the cells and pay for it. Well, back in my day you could... Uh, get free board and lodging in Pentridge for a week and not have to pay a cent. In fact, they'd pay you for a little bit of manual labour you did while you were there. Did you get treated generally well? Yes, apart from the head uh, warder of A Division who threatened to splatter me all over his office wall on one occasion. What did you do to upset him? I'd written a letter. Each uh, prisoner was entitled to write a letter to whoever you liked once a week. So I wrote a letter and not realising that the letter would be censored, made frequent references to the screws, as the warders were commonly known, but uh, you didn't put that in writing or say that to their faces. I wrote about a lot of rather embarrassing things from the point of view of the authorities that were going on in prison. There was a time when people like me were going to prison for all sorts of reasons, uh, being charged with all sorts of offences from riot and uh, refusing to uh, obey the conscription laws and uh, being arrested at demonstrations and so forth. So there was um, a constant flow of people in and out of Pentridge Prison on short-term sentences. And I wrote about the fact that Albert Langer, as he was then known, was uh, serving, well, a substantial sentence over riotous assembly, which he was uh, charged with doing and because he chose to defend himself, he argued that he should have the right to uh, legal books so he could prepare his own defence. And he turned out to be a, a very competent, although uh, untrained and unqualified lawyer. But he was allowed, as a special dispensation, to st- stay up late at night with the, the light in his cell on so he could read his legal books and prepare his defence. And having stayed up late, well, who'd want to get up early in the morning? So... I reported in my letter that uh, Albert had to be dragged out of bed by waters in the morning when he wouldn't get up for breakfast. (laughs) And this sort of thing was deemed to put the prison administration in a poor light. And uh, for writing about it, I was threatened with being splattered all over the uh, office wall of uh, the chief warden. But I was told by others that he was actually a pretty good bloke and uh, this was all bluster and he'd never dream of doing such a thing. So apart from that, I was quite well treated and I got to meet a good range of society, you know, your axe murderers and dodgy accountants and dodgy lawyers and con men and uh, drug addicts and uh, all sorts of people. And where did it go from there? You're out of jail. I was out of jail. That was just before Christmas in 1971. I promptly got a call-up notice, as they were called, to uh, resort to an army barracks, uh, which I uh, cheerfully ignored. At that time, I was working at the Children's Hospital uh, as a medical research scientist, and uh, I think the following March, after about three months, one week, I started to receive frantic phone calls from colleagues. Oh, so-and-so got arrested today, and the following day, someone else had got arrested, and uh, look, Bob, I think you ought to stay home from work. They're coming for you. So the following day, on the third day, I did, and uh, sure enough, the, uh, the Commonwealth Police, as they were then known, attended at the hospitals with a warrant of arrest for me, but uh, I wasn't there, realised I'd have to uh, move house and uh, go underground, as we called it. My boss at the children's hospital was uh, very sympathetic and sorry to lose me, but he said, look, you've got to resign. I can't give you indeterminate uh, leave. So I did. Later on, when all that had uh, finished, uh, 18 months later, he uh, invited me to uh, resume a job there, which I did. I spent the rest of that year from March until the federal elections were held in 1972. 
underground or on the run. My idea of doing that was not that you skulked away somewhere and just avoided arrest. That wasn't the objective. The objective was to confront the government at every possible opportunity with what they were doing and the Draft Resistors Union had a strategy of uh, seeking to confront the government, refuse all uh, legal orders to uh, join the army or do whatever else was required and challenge the government to arrest and jail us. And the government by that stage had an unpopular war on their hands and all these uh, potential uh, cannon fodder back home in Australia refusing to join the army and doing so in a very public way, popping up wherever I had the opportunity to uh, do so, speaking uh, at meetings of whoever from rotary clubs to trade union conferences to suburban peace groups. I took every opportunity to do that, to keep uh, the issue before the public and my particular case, but I was one of many, so this was happening uh, in most of the capital cities uh, in Australia. I'd imagine there's lasting friendships from those days. There are some. I used to change house every two weeks, uh, partly for security reasons, to uh, avoid police getting on my trail, but more so to demonstrate that it was possible to to move freely within the community, that there were people who were... uh, prepared to uh, support me. So I'd I'd move house every couple of weeks and there was a good network that uh, organised places where I could go. And I also, after a while, decided to go further than that. We put the word out that I was prepared to come and have a meal with uh, anyone who wanted me to and discuss the issue and uh, demonstrate they could demonstrate their support for what I was doing and I could uh, get the word around a bit more freely. So I got a lot of free dinners that way. And I hope I did something useful and provided some stimulating conversation uh, for a lot of people uh, too. So that went on until the federal election uh, came up that year. And partly, I think, by that time, most of the or all of the combat troops uh, had been withdrawn from Vietnam. The Australian government and the US government were acknowledging uh, indeed, if not in word, that um, the war was being lost. So they withdrawn the troops, but conscription was still on the books and the Labor Party was pledged to end conscription. And I'd like to think that the work that uh, I and uh, many hundreds or thousands of other draft resistors uh, contributed to firming them up on that decision. The Labor Party was committed to it. I remember one night when uh, Gough Whitlam opened his uh, election campaign with a speech at some town hall somewhere, which was broadcast on radio, huddle around the radio with uh, half a dozen other draft resistors, and uh, we were listening for what he was going to say, and uh, rather cheered by the the firm and uncompromising way in which he said conscription would be abolished, and the uproarious applause that he received from his audience when he did so. But We're also discussing that night what we would do if Labor lost the election and the Liberals continued with conscription. It was something we had to face up to and there wasn't one person there who was in any doubt that they would see this one through. But uh, there were differing uh, views on the best way to do that. Those who'd been underground for a long period and some of them had been underground for 18 months and more, they wanted to uh, turn themselves in, do their jail sentence, which was then 18 months, not the two years uh, that it had been previously, and get on with their lives. And others like me who'd been underground a shorter time were determined, no, we weren't going to do that. And I remember discussing with uh, one other draft resistor that uh, we'd go together um, up to the um, the Gann railway line, up to Alice Springs, and uh, work as uh, 
gangers on the railway there and uh, out in the desert. Uh, I don't know how long we would have lasted if we'd done that, but that was well known as a place where people on the run from the police would go and uh, no questions were asked uh, if you wanted a job there, just uh, could you uh, use a shovel and if so, you're on. Fortunately, it didn't come to that. Labor won the election and so we were free men. I think that's the best election night party I've ever been to. Once it was clear that Labor uh, had won, uh, we thought we could uh, come out of hiding and uh, go to uh, an election party uh, organised by Jean McLean, who'd been a very prominent supporter of uh, draft resistance. Were there people still in jail at that time who were released? Yes, there were. They didn't get out of jail the next day. Uh, They had to wait uh, three days. Gough Whitlam formed his government... uh, immediately uh, with a a two-person cabinet. You can do a lot of things as a two-person government without recourse to legislation. One of the first things he did was uh, open the jail gates and uh, let those serving terms for draft resistance go go free. And there were three of those uh, in Victoria. There were two of them uh, in Pentridge, Bob Skates and Ken McClelland, and another one in uh, Ararat Jail, Ian Turner. Those were the three in Victoria, and I think there were others in New South Wales and... uh, probably other states, possibly in Western Australia and uh, not sure about Adelaide. All those who were in jail were out of jail within three days and that was one of the most dramatic manifestations of that the Whitlam government certainly was a new broom and uh, sweeping away some of uh, the uh, uh, repressive stuff that, uh, that uh, the Liberal government had uh, had in place for a long time. Your support for the Vietnamese, how far do you believe it went at that time? I mentioned that uh, my views were really transformed by the uh, political debate at Monash University when I was there as early as 1967. By about 1970, I think, along with uh, many uh, hundreds or thousands of people, a lot of the youth who were active against the war reached the point where they supported the Vietnamese side. I remember chants at demonstrations, one side's right, one side's wrong, victory to the Viet Cong. That wasn't a slogan of the moratorium marches that had 100,000 people, but it was one of the slogans of the 5,000 or so who'd gather outside the US consulate on July 4 in those years, and other rallies might have up to 10,000 people, of people who quite explicitly were very clear that they were supporting uh, the Vietnamese side of resistance to the American and Australian and other intervention in the war. I can remember, I think it was 1970, about the height of the opposition to the war and when moratorium marches were the go, reading uh, a columnist in the paper who was writing about the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, a retrospective piece. But uh, he mentioned that at least 100 Australians went and joined the Republican side in that Spanish War between 1936 and 39, and that if the Vietnamese uh, were so inclined as to uh, set up an international brigade and invite people to join, there'd be a couple of hundred youths from Melbourne who'd go over and join them and fight against the Americans and Australians. That set me thinking, was that how far I wanted to go? And uh, in principle, I thought, yeah, I'd feel a certain obligation to do that if the Vietnamese ever did. But, of course, the Vietnamese weren't the least bit interested in doing anything like that, and the question never had to be answered and probably... uh, I wouldn't have had the courage to go and risk my life uh, in that way. But that's where my thinking was, and I wasn't alone. There are a lot of people who said the same. Uh, Some people said it rather boastfully in public. You could contrast that with the situation today. We've got a small handful of people who've gone over and fought against IS in 
Iraq and Syria, and two or three of them have been killed as a result, and the government's uh, threatening to prosecute such people. Forty years ago, in the time of the Vietnam War, there were quite a substantial body of opinion who would have uh, supported doing that. In fact, the Monash students who collected a few hundred dollars to send to the uh, the National Liberation Front in South Vietnam found out after the war was finished when a Vietnamese women's delegation visited Australia that that money was passed on through the Vietnamese embassy in Cambodia during the war. The woman who was telling us this was the wife of the Vietnamese ambassador that they got a cheque for $500 for the NLF and they wrote out a receipt and gave it to the bearer. But they were so touched by the uh, expression of support that rather than cash the cheque and and buy whatever the uh, NLF needed, they pinned it up on the wall as a memento and it stayed there till after the war. You've been listening to activist Bob Mutz talking about his early activism during the Vietnam War times as a conscientious objector and a draft resistor. He went on to program here at 3CR, was part of Open House and the early news programming. Australia Asia Worker Links, part of the Greens, worked at Community Aid Abroad, Oxfam, and perhaps in the next time we hear from Bob, we'll hear about the time when he was in Dili, East Timor, in 1991, the time of the Dili massacre. He was caught up in that and was injured, and it took him many years to recover from the trauma of the Dili massacre. So perhaps I'll be playing that part of Bob's story in the next couple of weeks. Bob Munts. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. Thank you, Your Worship. The Marxist Cowboys is a short, subversive uh, film about the alleged criminal activities of the Marxist Victorian Labour College over a 40-year period, uh, Your Worship. And it is all true. Listen, mate, I'm facing a few criminal charges. 325 fraud charges? They're all bullshit, mate. I was shocked. It has a cast of malcontents, including one Karl Marx. The wheels of the class struggle will turn again. This bit of subversion will be shown with two other bits of subversion at 3CR on Monday the 5th of October at 7pm, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Check the website if you need more criminal ideas of crime. Just be there. I know I will be. Thank you, Your Honour. 
Earlier this month, a candlelight vigil for justice was held in Sydney, the focus of which, the human rights of the Lumads, the indigenous peoples of the Philippines island of Mindanao, where in recent months tribal leaders and others have been murdered by the military and a 14-year-old girl raped by soldiers while in military custody amidst a brutal counterinsurgency campaign by the Aquino government. To understand what is happening today, we need to go back in history, and I'm speaking with Peter Murphy from the Action for Peace and Development in the Philippines. Peter, in the past we've talked a lot about the Moro people of Mindanao. Who are the Lumads? In Mindanao, there's several million indigenous people some of them, a large number, in fact, are Muslim and a large number are still holding principally to their indigenous religious beliefs. So they are not Muslim. The reference to Lumads is, is really to the indigenous people who are not Muslim and Moro people is more a reference to Muslim people. However, they, you know, they're really culturally speaking and ethnically speaking very similar. Have they had the same problems with the government and multinationals as the Moro people have? Yes, yes. There's been, in fact, a much more intense outbursts of fighting and warfare uh, between government people, government forces and the Moro people over the last 40 years or so. And, and also in the earlier period when the United States conquered uh, Mindanao, of course, there was a very severe war as well. Uh, with the Moro people. The, the Lumads are more a reference to people who have retreated from the lowlands to the mountainous areas, so they're in more remote places. But unfortunately for them in this period, this, this is the location of uh, forests for logging or mineral resources for mining. And so there is a very you know, determined penetration of their areas by companies wishing to exploit these resources and that's why there's conflict in this last 20 to 30 years that's uh, characteristic in Lumad areas. And what has this conflict meant for the people? It's really meant mass evacuations because of military operations in their territories and the it seems over this, you know, several decades, the pattern really is one where allegedly the army is, uh, the army of the Philippines is uh, in combat with some kind of rebel group, whether it's the Moro National Liberation Forces or uh, the New People's Army or somebody else. But the effect is that the population is forced off the land, which turns out to be of great interest to a logging company or a mining company. I think we could say that the military operations are mostly aimed at clearing the countryside of people who, who clearly own it so that another uh, group of interests can uh, exploit the resources there. How can the people, or how have the people resisted this? Yes, they, they have, because they have their own traditions of you know, warrior culture or resistance to external threats. And so, yes, there's been many instances, I think, where the armed forces of the Philippines have come off second best against the indigenous people. But on the other hand, because the armed forces has got aircraft and artillery, they can shell and bomb without their soldiers directly engaging 
uh, in the first instance in a combat and so whole communities that is you know people of all ages especially children um, young women who got to babies they have to evacuate the area when that type of bombardment takes place there's many many stories of uh, evacuations of 500 people 1,000 people 4,000 people going to the nearest town where they might be able to take shelter in a, either in a park or in some kind of church compound until it's safe to return to their area and often when they return of course their crops are burnt their houses uh, are destroyed their livestock are, are dead so you know there's, there's a lot of uh, dislocation and impoverishment happening to different communities at different times has this led to deaths in the community yes yes there's many 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 people being killed so the reason we're having this talk now is because just last month there were at least three people killed in one area in the northern part of Mindanao who are LUMAD people who had organized their community to have their own schools and the schools were defined by the military as red schools or rebel schools they killed the person who was the organizer of the schools and they killed two teachers there were two separate incidents but the, the second you know was really a terror sort of operation in the sense that uh, the soldiers killed two teachers in front of the whole community assembled to watch so it was um, you know really uh, meant to terrorize the community and of course there's been an evacuation from there since in that case there were three men killed but and, and in more recent cases which i've been myself writing protest letters about all of the victims have been male but uh, the killing of women happens and of course it's indiscriminate when there's a bombardment and um, children are killed as well and as well as wounded and the rape of a 14 year old i haven't got uh, any detail on on a case like that to, to name the details jan but the sexual abuse of people in these circumstances is also a common report you know where, where an, a military unit enters an area they generally actually occupy the school or the or the, the local municipal hall or some similar public building and then they prey on the target families and this this, this uh, sexual assault uh, of young women takes place partly for the amusement of the soldiers but partly to terrorise the relevant families. Why is all this happening in the Philippines, Peter? Surely in 2015, in many countries, particularly in Asia, you wouldn't find situations like this? Oh, I think you do, unfortunately. You do. <laughs> if you look at uh, Burma, for instance, mm. you'll find many stories just like I'm talking about. I even if you just think, uh, rethink about what stories you hear from Pakistan and India, there's quite a lot of this happening. But it's localised, so it's not the whole country at war, but a, a specific region where there's a specific conflict over resources you'll find this type of thing happening because the idea that we might have in Australia of the rule of law and proper uh, protection of civil rights and so is, is really either mirage or absolutely, you know, doesn't exist. So the Philippines is a society where there's about 80% of the population classified as living in poverty 
and uh, there's millions of people having to leave the country every year seeking relatively low-paid contract uh, work uh, in different parts of the world. Powerful interests in the country are desperately looking for uh, sources of profit or revenue. They really focus on um, the use of government to open up pathways to, to uh, revenue streams, whether they're siphoning off aid money or they're corruptly using government contracts for, for construction or other services, or they're corruptly using government ability to grant logging licenses or turn a blind eye to illegal logging operations or mining operations. This is the way in which the really, you could call it an oligarchy, the sort of upper layer of the society really um, maintains its wealth and it's determined to hold on to its uh, political power to enable its wealth and uh, income to continue. So actually it's, uh, it's a picture of a society with a very thin veneer of democracy covering up a really lawless, uh, ruthless sort of social conflict. You're writing letters. Who to? We write principally to the president, and uh, this is the president of the Philippines, the secretary of defence, uh, the commissioner for human rights, and, and copies to our foreign minister, uh, Julie Bishop, so that uh, it can't be said that we never heard of it. And this is often uh, the, the reply we get in Canberra when we raise these issues. Australia actually is, as, is officially quite engaged in Mindanao and uh, there's no way that uh, our government or our military are not really aware of uh, what is happening. But they also have an interest because Australian mining companies are seeking access to significant mineral resources in Mindanao. Is it true that the UN is getting involved in these killings as well? The UN has... Uh, been engaged in the sense that the special rapporteur on extrajudicial killings and enforced disappearances and uh, more broadly on human rights have reported adversely on the, these these uh, events in the Philippines since in the last eight years and uh, one of the these rapporteurs was, was an Australian who, who made a very comprehensive report which uh, unfortunately has had no real impact so, you know, it's a little bit like uh, you find with UN in different parts, even even in UN in relation to Australia, that the government, as long as possible, uh, ignores the uh, critical assessments being made by professional people from the UN. There was a candlelight vigil 10 days ago. How did that go? Yes, well, because of this particular incident of the killing of the... Uh, three people involved with the uh, indigenous schools in Mindanao. The International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, of which we are a part, uh, called for people around the world to mark the September 1920 weekend as um, a period to hold some kind of protest at the Philippines Embassy or Philippines Consulate to really protest at this escalation of brutalism and uh, murder to... Uh, signal the opening of a, you know, increased tempo of protest and pressure for real action on this uh, through to December 10, the World Human Rights Day, and uh, through to next year as well, where there will be elections in the Philippines in May. The, this is what we tried to do last uh, weekend in Sydney, and it was uh, 
heartening to me that uh, on a cold uh, night we had uh, 20 of our supporters come and uh, put on a really strong display about this particular um, terrible incident in in Mindanao. And uh, we had a very uh, positive reaction from passers-by outside the Philippines consulate in Sydney. And uh, I think it it was uh, serving the point for us to rally us to focus strongly on what's happened and to start to organise more events. Also, the People's Conference on Mining was held in the Philippines recently. What's been the follow-up from that? There was um, a report back session held uh, last week in, in Sydney about that. What we're trying to do is to educate our own network about the, the detail that came through the conference which had a focus on one mine in Mindanao, the Tampakan project it's called, which is uh, operated by Glencore, and uh, another mine in, in Luzon called Didipio, which is operated by Oceana Gold. So the human rights a- a- angle of this was also brought forward as well as the environmental and economic aspects of it. And all, pretty well on all fronts, uh, there's a sort of plunder going on uh, with this type of project in the Philippines and in many other parts of the world. And uh, there was an attempt in, in that conference in, in Manila. It was held right at the end of July to see the pattern in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa of uh, you know this type of exploitation now because we've got this global commodity you know, mineral price downturn happening and a sort of crashing of this whole... Uh, sector uh, happening and which companies are involved and how we could link up across these continents to maximise the pressure on these companies to either stop the plunder uh, or to significantly change their operations so that these human rights abuses and the gross environmental damage doesn't happen. What's a contact for people who like to become involved, Peter? I think uh, if I give you um, my uh, email address. That'll be the simplest way to contact. So that's um, Peter underscore Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y and the digit one underscore A-U for Australia at bigpond.com and uh, we have a Facebook page uh, Philippines Australia Union Link and we have uh, a web page uh, apdp.org.au Thanks very much Peter. Thank you Jan. And that, as you just said, that's Peter Murphy from the many groups supporting the Philippines. The one he spoke about there was the Philippines-Australia Union link. You can look that one up or you can send Peter an email. This is the address, Peter, lowercase. No, sorry, that's not the right word. Peter, no, I'll leave that one. I'll just say the Philippines-Australia Union link that would be the best for to keep on to Peter Murphy and keep finding out about what is happening to particularly anyone in the Philippines who puts their head up against the, the what the government is doing and the and the resources giants from all over the world are in the Philippines taking all their resources out and the people get nothing and often the government virtually gets nothing either. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR where the time is coming up to 5 o'clock. In a moment or so we'll be hearing about what life is like living 
in refugee camps out in the desert in western Algeria where the people from western Sahara have been forced to live since 1975. And this is Community Radio 3CR. You can be listening on 8.55am. You can be listening digitally on 3CR. You could have your computer open. You could be streaming 3cr.org.au. Or you can have this program and many other programs from 3CR sent straight to your computer. Again, 3cr.org.au. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR, spreading the seeds of dissent. I have just found that email address for Peter Murphy and I'll say it again if you've got a a pen or a pencil handy. It's Peter underscore Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y 1 underscore A-U at bigpond.com. I'll say it again. Peter underscore Murphy 1 underscore A-U at bigpond.com. Oh no. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no comment interview. A no comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say. No, no comment! To everything? Yes. Accept your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment. Yes, you say no, no comment. To everything? Yes, say no, no comment. If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment. It's for a legal service proudly supporting 3CR. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. It's hard to imagine what life would be like living in the desolate, most inhospitable Sahara Desert in southwest Algeria. Freezing in winter, little protection from blinding frequent sandstorms, unbearably hot in summer. But for hundreds of thousands of refugees from Western Sahara, men, women and children, this has been their existence since the 1970s. 
This Thursday, documentary filmmaker, writer and teacher Mona Kazan will be talking about her visit to the camps, which resulted in the book Sahara Libre and the documentary made with a Swedish group with whom she spent time in the camps. I spoke with Mona at her home in Adelaide last Friday and asked her first about her life and work prior to going to the camp in 2009. In 84, my husband and I went abroad for a year, which became 30 years. So as to what I was doing before I went to the Western Sahara, uh, nothing that I had really planned. I had studied social work in Australia, and abroad I was teaching English. I was a freelance writer, and I was running a book business and a cross-cultural business, amongst other things. How did you find out about Western Sahara? Can I read you a little bit about that? Because it was a really significant moment in my life. Absolutely. It's from my book. It's called Sahara Libra, and it's from the prologue. And I talk a little bit about 1885. And in 1885, my grandfather was born in a little mountain village in Lebanon. The manor house was built in Highbury, which was my family home. And the Berlin Conference took place in Africa. And the Berlin Conference was basically European powers carving up Africa and the Middle East among staggeringly greedy colonial powers. I had been in Sweden for quite some time, after 18 years in Asia, in Sweden maybe about uh, six years or so. And I'd studied something to do with social work and the, you know, the EU and policies, and I was dying of boredom, and I really needed something that was meaningful. So I came across this course, and this is what I write. And here, a barely a 20-minute walk from my home was a politics, journalism, and filmmaking course about a country called the Western Sahara. I read the text. The course sounded fascinating and challenging, but time after time I found myself returning to the picture of a little girl, maybe eight or nine. She stood in the middle of the desert looking straight at the camera with a gravitas that belied her youth. Ragged and clad in an ill-fitting dress, her quiet defiance challenged me. The strength and vulnerability of her stopped me dead in my tracks. Something about her resonated deeply within me, and I was keenly aware of what it was. I knew her already. She was me, the girl I might have been if my father hadn't emigrated, if like thousands of other Lebanese and Palestinian children I had been made a refugee thanks to Israeli aggression and sectarian violence. It could so easily have been me standing there in that threadbare dress, but it was not. I was lucky. My father had had the courage and the chance to make his way out before the bombs started falling and the country lost its way. He left Lebanon, a country that refused to offer all its citizens equal rights, political stability and the possibility of a decent life. He set sail for a country that already in the 1940s beckoned immigrants with the promise of a better, fairer life. But this girl, nameless and defiant, she didn't get the better life, the educational, the freedom that I did. Even now, she lives in a refugee camp. What security does she have? Why her and not me? The answer is, of course, the Berlin Conference of 1885. Her future was sealed by events that took place long before she was born. If things had gone differently in 1885, if there was no Berlin Conference carving up Africa and the Middle East, If the Western Sahara did not have the misfortune to share borders with an expansionist Morocco, she would be free. If there was somewhere for her to go, back to her own country, for instance, instead of being stuck nationless in a refugee camp, she would be free. But she is not. 
So where does the story start? This one, although it actually appears to start with a picture of this little girl in 2008, actually starts more than a century earlier. The most important thing was that I had never heard of the Western Sahara. I'm well-educated, I'm well-travelled, I've always known about Middle Eastern politics. I read a lot, I study always, I mean, I've always been a student of living lifelong education. I've never heard of the Western Sahara. That was a revelation to me. You've been accepted. What was the journey? Part of the course was a year study, and part of that year study involved going to the camp and basically studying there. We went through Algeria. We came in through Algeria and we stayed in the camps for about six weeks and did some research, which ended up in the book that I ended up writing and also a short documentary film. What prepared you for what you were going to see? The course was very much about research. It was about human rights and it was about politics and colonialism. But nothing really prepares you because we're used to having a lot of control over our lives and suddenly you're dropped into a situation where people have been living for two generations with very little control and also where you're not the master of your own time. Everything is done communally. So it's a bit difficult to be prepared. Everybody said it will change your life and I thought, bunk, these are people that have not done anything with their lives. But uh, they were right. Can you talk about those five weeks that changed your life? To put it in context, I mean, I've been living in Sweden, as I said, for a long time, and Sweden is a very... It's a wealthy society and people don't have, in a way, much need for each other. And suddenly you find yourself in the desert where everything is done communally. People need each other and they also want to spend time together. They're also in the middle of building a nation. So, I mean, you don't have so much a private life as you do in, in countries that are not in that situation. So I think that was one of the, the first things they began to understand about how very different life was. What were the living conditions for you? I was in a camp with 40,000 people and the figures are something like 200,000 to 250,000 Sarawis living in, in the desert, which they call Hell's Garden. So everybody basically lives the same way. You, you live in a, a mud brick house that's made of the, the desert sand from around you and you have kind of an annex, which is a canvas tent that's donated by some organisation. And it's unbearably hot in the house and it's unbearably hot tent uh, in the summer and in the winter it's just freezing. It's so, so cold and of course there's no heating. There's no insulation. The roof is just tin. So the living conditions were basic. The medical situation was, was fairly poor. Water was trucked in every week and you were acutely aware if the UN didn't truck the water in that you would perish uh, talking about having no control over your life. And people have been living like that for 75. In a desert situation like that, is it possible to grow food at all? There is some food grown. There are things like tomato plantations um, that you see and a little bit else. But, I mean, the climate doesn't support uh, a lot of growing of vegetables. Water is really scarce and the soil is not great. I mean, it's desert sand. So people subsist on, on food that comes in as rations, basically, plus whatever vegetables they can get hold of. A lot of tinned food. And the irony is that, you know, they have the best fishing stocks in all of Africa. But you don't sit in the camp eating beautiful fresh fish. You sit there and you eat really base-grade sardines that have been imported from Thailand that most people wouldn't feed their cat. You know, you eat a lot of 
packaged food, and a lot of you know, macaroni. And You've probably got three generations of people living there now because the right. camps have been there since the 70s. What's it like oh. for the older people, particularly older women? It's a poignant question, Juan, because you don't see that many older people. They're not long-living people, particularly the women. They have a lot of problems with things like diabetes. So you see a couple of old people sort of pottering around looking after the boat, but it's a young person's society. People don't have a long life expectancy. And what do children do to occupy themselves? I'd imagine they're very long days in summer. In the summer, I mean, people try to get out of the camps. Spain was the occupying power or the colonial power for 100 years, so Spain tries to pick up the tab a little bit, particularly since they essentially stood back and let the country be invaded by Morocco. So there's a lot of guilt then, and one of the ways that they deal with the guilt is by bringing in quite a lot of children from the camp to Spain for the summers. So children get away from the heat, they get to speak Spanish, they get to live in a different family situation, they get to see the world. But then they get dumped back in the desert. You might think so, but one of the things that amazed me, I talked to a lot of people, and I did a paper on, on Cuba and, and why people studied abroad and, and why they come back. People are not being dumped back. People want to come back. And I began to understand that. I mean, the thing about the Sahrawis was, like, who were they and why were they still in the desert? And, you know, didn't they want anything better? That's what I went in with because I didn't understand. And then you, you, you go there and you realise that, it's about nation-building, you know. It's about building a future for your children. People with really good education, maybe 10 years of education abroad, come back to the camps. They don't have to. They can get a passport in Libya. They can get a passport in Cuba. They can stay in Spain. They can, But they come back because this really strong identity of being Sahrawi. And without that, I mean, they would have perished. And how is that culture nurtured in the camps? Very much through the women. If you think about the fact that for many years at a time the men were away at war or they're away dealing with the animals or they're studying abroad, um, not that only the men study, but if you're asking me about the women, what happens is that um, the women are the heart of the camp. Basically run the camps, they keep society together and they have to. They're bringing up the next generation and it's something that being a mother is highly regarded. And being politically active is also highly regarded. So I found the women sort of in an amazing position with much more respect than I had understood of, of Arab society. When, you know, my background is Lebanese, so I knew something of it. Are they still having many children? Oh, I don't think you could say that. In my experience, I didn't see that. I saw women having two, three, maybe four children, and women within the family bringing up those children. So that, again, is, is done communally. But I didn't see huge families, not at all. Cuba, as you mentioned before, plays a big role in the camps with the, the medical people. And the... Yes, yeah. Cuba's responsible for training a lot of doctors and engineers. And in the day, I mean, the education was, was a superior education. It was a long education, especially medicine, and very well regarded. And what contact did you find that the people in the camps that you spoke to have with their families back in the occupied Western Sahara? Sporadic, I think you could say. I mean, you you just have to pick it. There's it as far as the eye can see and mud brick houses. There's no postman coming on his little motorcycle. You have internet if you're very lucky for an hour every couple of days. Electricity comes from, you know, solar panels. So 
you're really isolated in the desert. Communication is not very easy. So I once came back, actually the day we came back from the Liberated Territory, and I rounded the corner of a tent of the family that I was staying with. And one of the women looked at me, and it was such a look that I would never forget, and it was like, in a kind, protective way, but still, you know, her eyes said, be gone. And I realized later that somebody had come to visit her, and actually it was her brother that had come to visit her from the Liberated Territories and, you know, at great risk to himself. So sometimes people get visits, sometimes people get the permissions that they call them, special permissions, to visit their own family in their own country, but more often than not people live in great isolation. Did you have many conversations with the the young people, maybe older teenagers, young 20s, about what their hopes are for the future? Rather than the next generation, what's the what are the hopes and aspirations of that younger generation? Mm. And it's funny you should mention that because what I was really interested in was what things unite young people in the camps and young people living, for instance, in Sweden where I was living. I wanted to know what their thoughts about the future were, about freedom, what frightened them and what made them happy. And... Basically, I mean, the, the children in the camps or the young people in the camps, they're like young adults, I mean, small adults. It's not that there's a, there's a lack of joy, but there's the frivolity, I suppose, of a more luxuriant lifestyle. For instance, I, I was asking the, the girls in Sweden who were, you know, really nice girls from a nice school, smart kids, and so on and so forth. I was asking them, you know, what they were frightened of. And invariably, they said things like creepy crawlies and spiders which, you know, makes sense in their life because they, they live in a, you know, advanced country and uh, they, there's not that much, I suppose, to be frightened of. Sweden has a renowned welfare system and, and there's protection for people. And then I asked a little girl in the camps and she was eight and just very quiet, very still kind of child, very smart girl. And she thought for a while and she said, um, the thing that frightens her most is the Moroccan soldiers coming in the night and killing them all. Mm. Mm. So they were frightened of, of that sort of stuff. They were frightened of God, uh, in a way. I mean, they, they felt that their fight was just and that they would get their country someday. And the only thing, when you ask people, and I asked a lot of young people, you know, what fight, you know, if God wills it, it will happen, and if, you know, if he doesn't or she doesn't, it won't happen. And you just need to respect yourself, behave well, and fear God. And was it different between the young men and the young women? Great differences? It's hard to generalise on that. I think that in general I thought that there would be a lot of despair in the camps and there wasn't. I mean, I was amazed at people's morale and that people believed so simply that one day there would be a resolution that they would get their country back and they would be a sovereign state. They believed so much that there, there wasn't despair. But I did get a sense when I was talking to some of the women, in the case where they'd been away for a long time and, and studied for a long time and come back with something, you know, that they could maybe contribute to the camp or maybe not. I mean, if you're a doctor, there's work for you. If you're an engineer, you know, you're living in a refugee camp, there's not a lot of work. They could have spent, to be blunt, the best of their childbearing years abroad. And I had a sense that for some of the women, when they came back, they felt empty-handed, they were too old maybe to get married or it wasn't possible for some reason and nor was it possible to develop their careers. So I had a, a sense of, of sorrow over things like that from some of the young women.
Did you witness or participate in any cultural events like a wedding or a equivalent of a christening of a, of a child, anything like that? Yes, two things. I mean, you know, the Sarawis take tea every day, usually a couple of times a day. Yes, it's a massive ceremony. It's, it's sort of fundamental to the society because they live so communally. You know, you're expected to turn up the tea. If you want to read your book or be alone or do something else, it's sort of incomprehensible. So you, you take tea. And that's a really big part of the society because or the culture because that's when things are talked through and that's when people sing and that's when, when children dance and everybody is together. So that's a daily event. But I did stumble across a wedding. It was big and it was joyous and it was uh, loud and it was just a, a massive event. I could imagine the preparations would take a very long time for a big yes. occasion. And hugely significant. And also it was there for the Independence Day and the um, the envoy, uh, Christopher Ross, the envoy to the, um, the United Nations, was coming. It was hard to miss the fact that he left you know, thousands of people, I can't say how many thousands, but thousands and thousands of people waiting in the desert in the heat for six hours. He was late. Why he was late, I don't know, but there was never any apology, but... Nonetheless, it was great festivity around Independence Day. It was children, as far as the eye could see, marching and singing, and there was um, just very, I mean, a huge amount of joy. That was something to see. Did you get to speak to some of the NGO workers there and get their opinions of why they're there and what they feel about being there? Not really. I spoke to people who had come because of an academic interest that were doing PhDs and the like. But I didn't actually, myself, I didn't meet so many foreigners there, except for the Sarawi Marathon. And then there were <laughs> many people that come from abroad to run this marathon. Oh, I've heard about that. Can you explain what happens? You set off in the middle of the desert and you run as far as you can and then you come to the finish line. And it's, it's quite normal, but it seems so bizarre in this you know, de- desert environment in a refugee camp. So people are billeted with families. There's a lot of festivity around it, and it's a big event. People come from all over the world. So the Sarawis are really good at promoting positive things about this society. How do they map out the route in the desert? I think there were just people standing there, because, I mean, it's very flat, and um, there aren't any trees or landmarks. So people must have just been, instead of having, like, rope or something, there must have just been people there. I was in the back of a, a van. I'm not a very good runner. <laughs> I was in the back of a van filming it. I did hear that some of the Sahrawi people, men, actually run it without shoes. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And children run yeah, I should say there are lots of people from the camps that run it. It's not just an event for internationals. Yeah. And children run it a little bit, not seriously, but yes. Tell me about the impression of the visit on the other Swedish people that you went with. How many did you go with? We were nine people. When we came back, I mean, they, they were all Swedish, and I was 48, and the oldest of them was 26. We'd had some time sort of building up relations and, and figuring out who was who, and my Swedish wasn't fantastic at that stage. But in any case, we were quite close. It was a very uh, intimate group, I think, and it was only women. I think men... In the end, we decided that men wouldn't be bothered about such a course because it wouldn't lead directly to work. I mean, if you wanted to do this course and you're accepted, you really had to have wanted to do it to come into to a course that wouldn't lead to anything specifically work-wise. 
So we were um, very committed, I think, and very political and very keen and academically, you know, curious, intellectually curious about the situation. So we were quite a tight team when we got there. We were there, things invariably fell apart. I mean, people had like a, a mass dose of culture shock. They didn't understand things, including myself. Things like what I mentioned earlier about how time is communal. Your time does not belong to yourself. You have to share time. You have to be in company all the time. And people also struggled with the idea that they could leave, but the people in the camp could not. They struggled with, you know, the politics of colonialism, basically. And when we went back to Sweden, what happened was that everybody had a kind of culture crisis, a reverse culture shock crisis. And it was really easy to see. Everybody just got very despondent in a way because the thing that had happened in the camp, I was expecting it. I mean, I know about Arab hospitality and I know about communal living, although I struggle with it uh, sometimes. But for my fellow students, they come from a society where, I mean, like Stockholm, for example, has the highest number of single-person households in the world. So 60% of people that live in Stockholm live alone. And it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the way it is in that society. So you live very private, independent lives. And then you're plunged into this very communal life and you feel very much a part of family. And you feel very loved. You feel very looked after. And suddenly you're back to, you know, the winter between that's minus 15 and you're alone. You know, in a way, all of us had a reverse culture shock crash. Do you know what I mean, Jan? Yes, I do. Did you stay in Sweden once you got back? I stayed for another five or six years, yes. And what was the outcome for both you and for the others of that course? Where did it go from there? A couple of the women got together and, and tried to write a book. And it was good, but it was never completed. I wrote 43,000 words. Uh, I'm looking for a publisher. It was very difficult to publish in Sweden because although people speak English, they didn't want to publish in English, and my Swedish is not that good. I could translate it so that it was beautiful. But we also made a film, uh, the film that I talked about, and the film was shown a lot, looking at what Swedish and Sarawi teenagers had in common. Myself, I've gone on to teach human rights and... Uh, I became a filmmaker and also became a film teacher. So for me, it changed my life totally, actually. Okay, and now you're going to come to Melbourne for an evening with the Australian Western Sahara Association? That's right, the annual general meeting. And are you speaking at other places as well to spread the word in Australia? Not at the minute, not unless I'm asked. <laughs> I, I haven't been back very long, Jan, so I, I don't have all those connections yet, but I'm very happy to speak, speak at the um, association, at the AGM, very pleased indeed. Everybody is welcome. I believe it's an open forum. Yes. So if you're even a little bit interested, please do come along. You'd recommend people going to the camps, wouldn't you, to get that experience? Absolutely. You'd find yourself very, very welcome. It's an extraordinary experience. And if you're interested in like, questions of identity, who belongs and who doesn't and who decides, if you're interested in colonialism, if you're interested in you know, how we get the lives that we get, it's an invaluable experience to go there. It is life-changing.
And you've been listening to Mona Kazan, who spent five or six weeks in the desert camps in western Algeria, where since 1975, hundreds of thousands of Western Saharan refugees have existed in very, very basic camps in the desert. And she'll be the guest speaker at the Australian Western Sahara Association's AGM on Thursday. It's at the Collingwood Library, which is just off Hoddle Street. The, the town hall's in Hoddle Street. The side street is Stanton Street, and that's the entrance to the library. The AGM begins at 6. It's followed by a break for pizzas at 7, and then Mona will be speaking after that. And if they have time, they'll be showing the documentaries made with a Swedish group that she was with, as she was talking about then, of the time they spent at the camp. And she'll be talking about her book, Sahara Libre. I know she's spoken about a number of things just in this interview, but I'm sure there's a lot more that she'll be talking about tomorrow. Not tomorrow, it's Thursday. Thursday evening at the Collingwood Library in Stanton Street, Collingwood, just off the Punt Road, Hoddle Street, where the town hall is on the corner. I'll be going in a couple of minutes and we'll be hearing from Food Fight. For the first time in Australia, Variety, the children's charity, presents a once-in-a-lifetime evening with Ilyasa Shabazz, daughter of the American civil rights activist Malcolm X. Listen to Ilyasa share intimate details of her early life, discuss lessons learned from her inspirational father, and explain how she's working to better the lives of disadvantaged young people around the world. Saturday, 10th of October. Book now at varietypresents.org. Variety, the children's charity, is a 3CR supporter. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. And that is all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock and in a few seconds' time you'll be hearing Jonathan with Food Fight. So I'll say bye for now.